Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversation we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And in February of next year, two big things are going to drop. First, my book, Fortune, drops on February 8th, and in it, I trace 10 generations of my family story, demonstrating how laws and policies impacted the course of my family's future and fortunes. And then the book calls for repair of all that race broke in the world. The second thing to drop will be a new podcast called The Four. The Four will gather four national and international Black faith leaders for deep dives on issues that concern the Black community. It will feature Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, and me. Last month, we spoke with Jackie Lewis. This month, we welcome Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Deputy Director of Faith in Action, a faith-rooted federation of community organizing networks across the country. Michael Ray is also the host of the Prophetic Resistance podcast. As we cross the threshold into 2022, I wanted to talk with Michael Ray because he is the living embodiment of soul force. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, so Michael Ray, one of the things that has impressed me the most about you is that you are an organizer who is committed to connection with your own soul. I mean, I think we, sometimes we look at those pictures of marching organizers and screaming organizers and the signs and the placards, and we don't, or not all of us, but many people look at those folks and don't realize that a lot of that is coming from a deep place in their soul, a deep connection to what should be. Yes. Right? But then also I have to say, there's also the reality that sometimes we can kind of get off, right? We can lose touch with (laughs) our souls. So I want to ask you, I wonder if you could just share a bit about your own faith journey that you've trod that's led you to such deep commitment to movement powered by soul force. Wow. That's a really lovely way of framing how I understand my call. I don't think I've always used that frame (laughs) to talk about it. I think I'm going to, I'm going to chew on that for a while after this conversation (laughs) and think about the power of soul force in my story. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast. I enjoy listening to the Freedom Road podcast. Awesome. And, uh, I'm so excited. I'm still in the middle of your book, uh, and I'm looking forward to the time when we can all celebrate its release into the world. Yay, um, thank you. <laughs> you know, we have a lot in common, you and I, in terms of mm-hmm. um, our spiritual heritage and the communities that have shaped us. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And I grew up in a large historic African-American congregation, one in which I learned 
two things. I learned the importance of a, what I call a rich and robust relationship with the Redeemer. Oh, um, I love that. Um, <laughs> like our, our folks are like serious about Jesus. Yes. Um, and the, the notion that you would have, you know, integrity and authenticity in your relationship with Jesus the Christ was just, you know, was, was paramount. But we were also a historically Black congregation, mostly made up of people who had participated in the Great Migration from 1915 through 1970, folks leaving places like Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and Arkansas for California. And there was this real sense that we came from a people and that our people had a heritage and a story. And that, you know, that, that story was connected to sort of the milieu of the post-civil rights moment. So we had this sense that, you know, from the West shores of the continent of Africa, you know, through slavery and up from slavery and through mm. Jim Crow and up from Jim mm. Crow. And there was this real sense that God was a part of that story, too. Mm. Um, and that we, wow. were, we were in, inside of God's story. Right. And so that we had a responsibility, not just for our relationship with the holy, but for our relationship with others who were a part of that struggle, who were a part of, of that reality. And so, you know, we were a congregation that had a real commitment to the community and we had lots of community ministries and social action the committees that were involved in a number of, of important issues um, in the city. Mm. And I had a sense that that's what it meant to be a Christian. It meant to know God through Jesus, mm. but also be in relationship with others in a way that made a difference in people's lives and in whole communities. Now, can I just say very quickly, because I know that you're kind of in the middle of your story, but I have to say, I'm really, I'm struck by how different actually that experience that you had was from my own because I, I came into my, you know, my adult faith in the context of a white evangelical church, yes. whereas for you, it was really a black or a black church that had evangelical roots. Right. And so you had the personal faith thing, but that's where the white folk ended it. Yes. They were not about being a yes. part of any kind of larger thing in their faith. So, so here's the other part though. So okay. I described to you the community that informed me Saturday for children's choir and usher, usher <laughs> drill, right? Oh and, gosh, and, on, and on Sunday morning, you know, for worship and for right. afternoon service and those kinds of things. But what, yeah. I, what I haven't told you yet oh. is that Monday through Friday, I spent my time at Gardena Valley Christian School, oh. Harbor City Christian School, oh. St. John Lutheran School, Holy crap. And Calvary, Calvary Chapel Christian School. O-M-G. Okay, so now, so now, so now we cousins now, right? We now cousins we now, understand. Okay? Right? Whoa, wow. So, okay, so for, wait, for those who do not understand, we must, we must, we must interpret. So what you've just described there is you've really described kind of the spectrum of the white evangelical yes. movement of yes. the church, right? So you have yes. everything from kind of the mainline evangelicals with the Lutherans. Got Assemblies of God. And Lutheran, Assemblies of God. Four Square. And, and Four Square Cal, too. Calvary Holy Chapel. Crap. So that's like the Pentecostals. 
Yes. And then the Calvary Chapel, which is yeah. like straight up conservative. Yes. And yes. then they come out of that. They came, um, out, in fact, many of them came out of the many movements that have come out of Los Angeles. When you trace church history in America, you cannot avoid Los Angeles because it ends up being this place of huge reform, That's reformation, right. reform That's in right. America. Over and over again. Over and right, over right. and over From and Azusa over Street again. Revival through yes. yep, the, the Jesus movement, all that. Yes. Exactly. And so Calvary Chapel was in like one of those later waves in the 1970s, mm-hmm. um, I think 70s, 80s, where yes. it kind of came up before the vineyard, I think, That's or right. around that That's same right. time, right? right. Yeah, they and cousins. So it, they, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they blood cousins or spit cousins, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like out of the same same space. And so, but Calvary Chapel was was even more conservative than the vineyard. Yes. So that absolutely. was your that was your Monday to Friday, right? Wow. Right. So okay. So, so I, was, I would have loved to have met Michael Ray Matthews back then. Yes. So I was <laughs> navigating things I didn't really even understand. Like wow, I knew. Yes. I mean, I obviously knew that in those in those Monday through Friday spaces, I was in predominantly white spaces. Although I must say that. This, all four of those schools were pretty mixed racially, but it was very clear that who ran the school. Oh yeah, right, and who yeah. mostly taught in the classes. Right, it was just whose worldview was shaping Ex- exactly. the worldview of the school. Yes, exactly. And so I, yeah, I was much older before I realized what I was really navigating. You know, from you know from a theological standpoint, but you know. For me, it was all one thing. And I, I believe we were talking about the same Jesus. I believe we were talking about the same God. So I was trying to make sense of this deep, rich spiritual heritage that, you know, was a part of my biological family, you know, and the, the family of my sort of racial and ethnic community with the Jesus that I was learning about in a very vigorous way in these private Christian schools. Wow. Um, and so I, there were ways in which I brought both traditions to critique one another without even knowing that's what I was doing um, oh, yeah. over time. So, no, I understand that. So both, and both communities really emphasized a rich and robust relationship with the Redeemer. Mm. And so when you talk about soul force, it's about me understanding that, that undercurrent that is always there, that I'm always reaching deep into that well. Mm-hmm. To make sense of my life and to make sense of, of my call and to make sense of what God is doing in the world. So that as mm-hmm. I get older and I have more questions for the white evangelical church, mm-hmm. as I get older and I have more questions for the historic black church. Hello. I haven't forgotten, right, mm-hmm. the resource, the well that I have to, to, to reach into to help me make sense of the world around me, of the traditions that have shaped me. And where I'm trying to go in my journey. Hmm. So when you when you ask the question of like when what parts of your faith story inform you now around what like have you identified that you know like you have just you've just identified that personal relationship with the Redeemer as being one of the things that helps you to connect with soul and and, and moves you to connection with soul force. What is it that moves you to march? Hmm. What part of your faith moved you to march? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question because as much as I just you know, gave praise to the church that raised me, when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper 
about liberation theology or liberation theologies and whether or not they actually existed in the congregation that raised me. And my premise in the paper was that it was that Black liberation theology did not exist in the church that raised me. When I told the pastors who raised me that this was the point of my paper, they were livid. (laughs) And they began to, first of all, explain how they personally incorporated and intuited, internalized Black liberation theology in their ministry leadership in that congregation. They helped me understand some of the mitigating factors of like what it meant to pastor people who were coming out of the civil rights movement, who now wanted to reap the benefits of it and wanted to have a theology that was less about struggle and more about achieving the dream. Uh Um, And about how there was this tension that, so sometimes what I picked up in the church around sort of like middle-class values and Mm -hmm. reaching for whiteness were Mm. really about, you know, Black people who had struggled and achieved wanting to somehow reap the benefits of it. But they they also reminded me that um, I met Oliver Tambo, the South African activist at that church. They reminded me that Benjamin Elijah Mays, as a very old man, signed my Bible. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They they reminded me of the roles that they and other pastors in the city. They were like, hold up. Like, (laughs) do not diss this tradition. Don't you do that. And don't miss out on the heritage that is yours by way of our commitment to the liberation of our people. And so (laughs) it's. Wait, wait. Wait, I'm sorry. I just, I'm kind of stuck on Benjamin Mays. Okay, so for those who don't know, Benjamin Mays was one of the one of the mentors of Dr. King. Yes, right. And was at Morehouse, which That's at right. Morehouse College right. when he was there. He was a professor there or was he mm-hmm. the president? He was the president or dean. He was, he was way up there. He was, he he was, was way up there. He was one of the leaders. To many, of yeah. the, many of the movement leaders. My God, he signed your Bible? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And my that was revised standard version Bible. You're right. With the, Revi- not not new revised, just revised, revised. Yes, standard. before new revised. Before NYRC. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Wow. No. Wow. So they were like, don't you diss this heritage? No, no, no. Okay. So there, there are ways in which I've, I've had to re- recognize the rich, rich, rich uh, tradition, spiritual tradition that's been handed down unto me um, by the people in that congregation and the people in my family. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in Los Angeles. My mother is from, was, was born in Georgia, raised in Ohio. My dad's family is from Louisiana, southwestern Louisiana, the Bayou, wow. Bayou wow. country, Cajun, Cajun country. Oh, my um, goodness. And, you know, I've learned over the years just how much faith and struggle have shaped how they understood themselves mm-hmm. um, in the world. And just things I didn't even realize were happening to me. Almost like the way you're unpacking some mysteries um, in your book. Uh, yeah. to discover why does our family do this? Or why does our exactly. family think of the world in this way? Exactly. Uh, I've, been, I've been on a journey of, of unpacking that and seeing that as another part of the undercurrent that I get to reach into as a resource in this moment. And we need as many resources as we can get a hold of in moments like these. So one of the resources that you often tap into is song. 
Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, where does that come from in your family heritage? Who had a song? Who always had a song? Gosh, that is so interesting. You know, we definitely were a family. I wouldn't say we were an incredibly musical family on both sides, hmm. but there are like musicians and people who are gifted with song um, on both sides of my family. And so it was not unusual to hear lots of music. Mm. Um, in the homes of both my maternal and paternal families, it was not unusual for there to be someone who played piano. Mm. It was not unusual for there to be someone who was humming and singing while cooking. It was not unusual for family gatherings to sometimes be punctuated with, you know, people breaking out into song and singing, you know, in uh, collectively together. Oh my God, um, I mean, we were not, we were not like I'm a family. Say, that's, that was not that, my but... family. Like <laughs> not a lot of families break into song. So yeah. that's pretty special. Wow. Yeah. And, but also I still have this vivid memory of me at the white private Christian school, just <laughs> singing my little black heart out. Oh my God. You know? And, um, uh, in the middle no, of what, like math class or what? Like, you know, you know, <laughs> in, in, you know, in Christian schools, you know, there's a lot of ways in which, uh, Christian practice gets woven into things. So, you know, you open the day with prayer. Oh, yeah. You pledge allegiance to the Bible. You oh, pledge allegiance God. to the Christian flag. And you pledge allegiance to the to the American flag. I didn't realize know? there were three pledges of allegiance. <laughs> My God. And then you um, you might have like a little song in worship, depending on the, the musical gifts of the teacher. So, you know, some of my teachers were, we, we sang all kinds of those proto-evangelical praise songs. Oh, yeah. You know, happiness I, is, um, you know, you know what happiness <laughs> is? Happiness. No, no, no. Da, da, oh, yes, da, yes. Da, da. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Happiness is. Da, da, yeah, da, da. exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think that song has always been in me. And, of course, you know, by the time I was 12, I was discerning a call to ministry. I was at the Calvary Chapel School. And, you know, Calvary Chapel had a store where you got all, where they had Bibles and all kinds of books and study aids, but also lots of music. So like a lot of the early Christian praise music, Christian They were known for rock, that. Yep. All of that, you know, Sandy, Patty, Amy Grant. Oh my God. Right, Rich Mullins. Sandy, like, Patty. You know, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I Larnell, like, Larnell Harris. Holy right? crap. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> You just took me back. Yes. Like to the 80s. I would listen to Christian radio, WKBRT, KBRT on Santa Catalina Island. Um, And they would play all of that music as as well as every once in a while, a little bit of music by some black artists like Tremaine Hawkins or the, or the Clark sisters, you know. They throw it in like, like Pepper. They're crossover, (laughs) the crossover pieces at those. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. And as I became more introverted too, and that technology was available and that music was available, then I was singing a lot by myself, you know, with my headphones Um, on, singing these songs. And then by the time I discovered, you know, the Winans and Commission, you know, it was, it was, it was off and popping. And so then, you know, I sing, I sing in the choir church, sing, sing in the children's choir. By the time I was singing in the youth choir, we were singing more contemporary stuff. I sang Mm -hmm. in the young adult choir. And so time I was in college, I was taking voice lessons and mm-hmm. yeah, just really trying to um, embrace song as a part of who I am. 
So when I was in college, one of the songs that just became my song, like my spirit song, and to this day, it's one of, it's like the song that lives on my heart, right? It's this song, I love you, Lord. You know, and Mm -hmm. it's funny because sometimes you go to a black church and you hear them sing it and you hear, you Lord. Yes, 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 yes. And they'll draw everything out. And I lift my voice. Yes, 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 yes. Oh! Yes. To worship you, oh my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front line of the struggle for justice. Many listeners of Freedom Road podcasts have tracked with me over the course of years. You have been growing with me in conversations with people, but I think that there is nothing more powerful than the power of story, family story, to heal the world. So that's why I wrote Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Our nation right now is really at the brink In many ways, we're torn. We are more divided than we've been in more than a century. Now is the time for us to listen to each other's stories. Now is the time for us to lay down our arms and simply try to understand how we got here. And as a result, maybe even gain a new vision for where we can go together as a nation, as one America. 30 years of research, 10 generations, one family, the roots of race, the degradation, the resistance, and the rebellion, the rising, the calls to truth-telling, repair, and forgiveness. Fortune drops on February 8, 2022, so pre-order now. When you pre-order, You help bump Fortune up so that the people who need to see it do. Pre-order Fortune, and let's continue to walk this road together. Faith in Action is a national federation of faith communities and coalitions. And in many ways, we are better organized than ever, right? Like several, many 
coalitions that have come together, some that are completely grassroots, others that are national, like Faith in Action. But just policies are still being thwarted in Congress. So I'm just wondering, you know, can we switch hats right now? And like, we've talked about soul force. We, we know that there's a huge contingent of, of faith-rooted organizers that are out there talking to people of faith about why we should be pushing for just policies. And yet still, we are in a situation right now where we can't get these policies pushed through Congress. So I just want to, I want to know, what do we need to do better? What do we need to do better in our organizing? Yeah, I think we have to go deeper. I, mm. think, I think we have to go much deeper. So faith, just, just to clarify, Faith in Action is now a global network. Um, wow. So, so we, you know, we, were, we were started in, in California and we spread out throughout the United States and we're in 25 U.S. states. But we're also in Rwanda. We're also in Haiti. We're also in El Salvador. And we have other projects coming up in uh, Central America and other parts of of, of, the, of the African continent and some parts of Eastern Europe. So, oh my God, there are ways in which we're trying to figure out what it means to embrace a global lens for understanding who we are, which is a pretty fascinating experience. And, and even as we're expanding in that way, at the same time, to my earlier point, we have to remember to keep going deeper. It's not so much about how far we spread, right? Yeah. But really about yeah. how deep, how deep we go. Wow. Um, in into the, the richness of our spiritual traditions to help us make sense of the moments that we're living in, help us clarify the power that is within us collectively, and to help us clarify the ways in which we can try to live into those values in a way that changes policy. It's, it's n- not just about how far we spread, because right. this struggle is indeed a global struggle. And mm-hmm. we're learning that more and more. Like we're understanding how white supremacy is everywhere. We're learning that the climate change crisis is about the whole planet. Mm-hmm. It's not just about how far we spread, but how deep we go into mm. the richness of our spiritual traditions to help us discover uh, the strength and the power that we need to change our lives, to change the lives of people around us, and to change the material conditions mm. of our experiences. The thing that just strikes me about that is that there's a true, I mean, a real, belief that our our spiritual traditions have the power to change the world like they actually it's not just a philosophical conversation it's not just you know i think this you think that it really isn't for you And, and in your work it is our faith the more we tap into it we actually can get the just world we want that's deep yes and i i think you know, one of the realities we're having to face in this moment is that as the religious landscape is changing and mm-hmm. as people are thinking differently about religion, hmm. that folks are also coming to the realization that faith still matters, even if faith yeah. is not bound by a particular religious tradition or religious categories, the power of faith and spirituality to fuel our commitment to social justice is still quite strong. Mm-hmm. And even folks who are approaching social change through a lens that's not, you know, religious per se, mm-hmm. are reaching for eternal truths, reaching for wisdom, reaching for practices mm-hmm. that sustain them over time. So that in the landscape, you'll have the faith and justice folks like people like you and me 
right? Mm-hmm. In our in mm-hmm. the organizations that we've been affiliated with mm-hmm. across the years. But you'll also have spiritual practitioners who weren't doing social justice work who now see the need for them to bring a public expression of a very discreet practice into the public square. And you'll see folks who the Christian world would call secular social change agents bringing values language, bringing practices into their organizing because they realize how very hard, we all are realizing how very hard this work is and that we need to have something that sustains us over time. Yeah, I mean, I I think that one of the things that I, I mean, I often say is that the whole of life is really about being reconnected to each other, to ourselves, to God, to the earth, reconnection. That's what justice looks like. Justice looks like connection. It looks like the ability to connect. It looks like the agency to connect. It looks like the capacity to connect to the earth and not be dominated by the toxins that are being pumped, you know, pumped into our water supply or um, dominated by wars or dominated by police or dominated because all of that breaks connection with self and with others. Right. That's right. So when I hear you say that people who are on the secular side are actually like reaching toward their spirit, their soul, and those who are on the spirit soul side are reaching toward justice. It, it, I think the thing that strikes me is that we're in this moment right now where it all just seems so clear. Like yes. the reality that we are disconnected is so clear. Yes. So everyone is reaching for what it will take that they don't have, that it will take to be reconnected. Does that yes. make sense? Absolutely. You? Absolutely. And that's why faith and spirituality are still resources uh, for mm-hmm. this work because it is through the lens of faith and spiritual practices that we figure out how to do things like examine our story, tell mm-hmm. our story. I mean, mm-hmm. you're trying to make connection, Lisa, in mm-hmm. fortune. You're mm-hmm. trying to achieve a kind of spiritual connection that helps you understand who you are and invites all of your readers mm-hmm. to make that same kind of connection. And yeah. that's Connection is deeper and longer lasting than any policy, because what what we have learned is that any policy that we can fight for can also be dismantled. Isn't that deep? Oh, my God. And so the struggle that we are in is really transgenerational. Yeah. It is across time. You know, Mm -hmm. you and I both have been, you know, studying our our family histories. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I found my sixth great grandparent um, just before the Civil War. I found their son on a slave role, but also on a voter role. And mm. last year when we were, you know, doing the census and trying to figure out how to have an election, I was realizing that I don't even know Delcy, Mother Delcy and great-great-grandpa Green, but mm. I do. Mm. Um, and the same, mm-hmm. the same you know rights in life that they were fighting for is the same rights in life that I'm fighting for today. <sighs> because every effort that we've made to offer them access to the franchise has been thwarted across time. I, I had to reckon with 153 years of our family's relationship to the franchise of voting last year and recognize this, this is ongoing. And I got to pack my, my, my bag with all the spiritual resources I need because wow. I, don't know I need them. But six generations from now, my descendants, biological or not, will need yeah. them as well. You know, 
how do you keep hope in the middle of that though? I mean, really, because I mean, you're talking about the, I mean, the depth of the struggle we just, we have been in, let alone what our ancestors went through. I mean, not, I mean, not only those who, who suffered the backlash after reconstruction was dismantled, but also those who were a part of the big push in the sixties and fifties. I mean, they went through it. Yes. And yet now we are still having to go through. It. And then you say six generations from now, oh God. Like, yes. And I think about it and it makes sense, right? Because we are not static beings and every generation has to make their own choice. That's right. Has to make the choice to be just every generation. And as a result, every generation is going to have to push against those who don't want justice, who want yeah. hierarchy. Yeah. So I get that. I get that. But how do you sustain hope? Well, part of it is learning the story, telling the story, and hmm. sharing the story. Hmm. Like it's on the one hand, I look at I look at my family history, and yes, it's depressing that in 2020 I was still fighting for the same right to vote that Hello. my ancestors had fought for. Mm -hmm. But wow, in 2020, I am still fighting <laughs> for the rights mm -hmm. that my ancestors. I I gladly and proudly. Mm -hmm join that tradition that's wow. how so it's, it's about wrestling with that truth with that reality in ways that take seriously like the the insidiousness of it but yeah. also recognizing that those people stood up and said we are here right and mm -hmm. i can stand up in this moment and say i am here and i'm hoping that i'm depositing wisdom that six generations from now people will look up and say how do we hope and they'll say you know Michael Ray and Lisa, hmm. they they had hope. They stood up in the moment. They said, we resist. And in many ways, for us who come out of, of the tradition that we do, this is this is what we do in the pulpit all the time. When we hmm. were reading these ancient stories, right? Of That's people right. Who stood That's up right. And said, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still That's here. That's right. That's and right. And every Sunday morning, we are in church saying, we're still here. We are still here across hmm. all of these generations of oppression. Sometimes, you know, at the hands of our very traditions, we are still here. Hmm. You know, I heard recently Renee August, my, our good friend Renee August from South mm -hmm. Africa, mm -hmm. was quoting from Hunger Games. And in Hunger Games, he said, you know, why do we have a winner in Hunger Games? It was, he said, it's to give a little bit of hope because a little bit of hope will keep people captive. But a lot of hope is dangerous. Mm. And I thought, I know, isn't that something? So a little bit of hope will keep people captive, but a lot of hope is dangerous. And I think that's why Dr. King focused on soul force. Yes. Because soul force pushes past a little bit of hope. Yeah. And, and gets us to that lot of bit of hope, a lot of hope, which is dangerous. It's that because something inside so strong, right? Mm. Yeah. It's yes, that something inside so strong. Yes. Y'all, yes. for those who don't know, Lavi Safre was a, um, was a, a, I think it was, he South African. I know that he was singing in, um, in England, I think at the time, but he sang this song that became an anthem for South Africa called mm -hmm. Something Inside So Strong. Something inside so strong. I, I don't know even know. You know I, what? I know that I can make it. I know that I can make it. Even though you're though doing me, doing so, me wrong, wrong. so wrong. So wrong. That's right. Not that's that my right. pride was gone. There's something inside. Mm -hmm. so yes. <laughs> yeah, but something inside so strong. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good word. That's right. Something inside so strong. And it's the soul force that's so strong. 
but it's only strong if we, if we cultivate it, right? I mean, it actually can atrophy. It can. And that's, I think, when we fall into depression and that's Mm -hmm. when we get immobilized. And we also kind of go into, well, whatever I do isn't going to make any difference, which is really where a lot of the young people are on on the block where I live right now in South Mm -hmm. Philly. I was surprised, like truly surprised how many of them not only didn't vote in the last election, but given the opportunity to even talk about it, they were like, they had actual logic for the reason why they were not going to vote and why it didn't matter. It was poor logic. I mean, really, because it showed how much they don't understand about the system. But at the same time, they are thinking about it. But that's how... That's how despairing you have to be Yes, to not even vote. Yeah. And it's, it's understandable. Like I, I, I don't agree with it, but I, I completely like get where folks are coming from. It seems hopeless. (laughs) It literally seems, seems hopeless, which is Mm -hmm. why I think that our organizing and our social justice work can't just be about single events or single policies. It can't be just about every election cycle and showing up to vote. It can't be just about lobbying for a particular piece of legislation as important as that is. It has to be about this much uh, deeper and longer arc of understanding that, that doesn't allow for the current conditions to completely shape how and why we participate in this work. Because if you only are relying on that, and you're only looking for like what's going to be the winning strategy, mm-hmm. then you're not going to understand the very spiritual dimensions of this struggle. And sometimes that means we lose, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. that means we don't achieve mm-hmm. what we set out for, but it's about what happens in the journey when we make connection with one another, when we make connection with ourselves, when we make connection with the holy and with our ancestors and with the larger movement. And it's about that body of work, that that kind of work, which is reaching deep into that undercurrent that is underneath us, that holds us up Mm -hmm. um, and allows for us to stand in those critical moments. We have to have clarity about that. If we only are going to be a part of a campaign that we know is going to win, Mm. then, yeah, you're going to be depressed if it doesn't win. So what do we need to do differently in order to in order to get there? You know what I mean? Well, you know, do differently. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I I think that a big part of the work is about digging deeper into the the skills of relational power. What does it mean for us to see ourselves as a part of a longstanding community of people who are in deep relationship with one another? What does it mean for us to embody? You know, we, we live, you know, in, in this capitalist culture, (laughs) In this hyper-individualized culture, Mm, you know, mm. we can participate in these activities of organizing and social Mm -hmm, justice mm -hmm. and then turn that off and go back to our private lives. I think that ultimately we're going to have to think about our lives as as less private and more public. And we're going to have to think about what does it mean for us to practice a way of being in the world that embodies Mm -hmm. the values that are behind the policies that we're organizing Mm. for. Mm -hmm. It's that commitment to a way of life that's going to sustain us, not a commitment to a particular campaign. It's striking because I know that like we, we push for, you know, child tax credit. We push for build back better. We push for 
infrastructure and climate, you know, climate, not change, but the legislation to mitigate climate change. Yeah. We push for these things, but then we go back and we, we do our individual lives. Like, I guess what it would look like for me, biblically, you know, my little, my faith um, stream coming out, my evangelical faith stream, it looks like Acts 2 and Acts 4. You know, like it really does like they, that first original, like boy, when that, when God broke into the world community, they embodied it. Yes, they really did. And so I'm thinking like, what would it look like for me to, to actually live into as if it is true and therefore to make it true, to live into an act two understanding of the world on my block. That's right. Yeah. in Philly, Philly's all about the block. It's like the different blocks. <laughs> You know, and so on my block, you know, I have the young, actually young and older men who, who hang out on the corner every single day, but they're not just hanging out, they're working, they're working mm-hmm. out there, right? And mm-hmm. so, but then you also have the, the young gay couple on the, like down the street with the really awesome door. and then you have you have the um, old lady ma who's been there for three she has three generations living in her house and who probably didn't know my grandma but lived one block from my grandma when my grandma was there that one block away you know like you have you have this incredibly mixed community that can feel really disjointed and really kind of aggregate but so what would it look like for me as an individual to begin, and I have been trying this, but to, to torque it up to even more, to mm-hmm. really literally lean mm-hmm. into an acts to connection with my community. Yeah. Is that what you're saying we need to do? Absolutely. That is exactly what I'm saying. And I feel like it's a very, it feels like a very tall order because of how, it is. how fragmented we are, right? And how, and how high- fearful. Yes. Yes. I mean, we don't have these ready-made integrated, you know, communities. And when I say integrated, I don't, I don't mean just racially integrated. I mean, yeah. just, you know, you can be in a black community and still feel like very disconnected from yeah. everybody has their own house. Like I live in a house where the door is on, is on the side of the house. Uh-huh. So like when I walk out my front door, I see the wall of the house next door to me. I don't see oh. the neighborhood. Wow. Um, and it is very possible in my neighborhood to drive home, pull in the garage and never see anybody on the street. Mm. So like our lives are, are organized in such a way mm-hmm. that we don't have to, you know, mm-hmm. get to know each other and get to um, see our, our well-being as caught up in each other's well-being. I, I love that you can tell the stories of your neighbors. So many of us can't, Lisa. <laughs> so many of us yeah. can't. I just moved in about a year ago. Literally a year ago, a year and a few months now, actually. And one of the things that I made my, I made it my, my mission to learn the names, at least of all the people that I lived around. And then I ended up learning their stories as well, which I have to say, it's just like, wow, like literally every single, every single person that I met was an epic story, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single one had an epic story. And Every single one was a good person just trying to make it in the world today, right? Every single one. And yet when you first move in, you don't know people. You think, oh, those guys on the corner, they're going to be dangerous. Or those guys actually helped my mom like get groceries out of the car recently. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Help me get the rest of them out. And and he he has like gold teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Like really, like I was really honestly shocked. Now I know he's a nice guy. 
you know, I know he's, he's a good man, but he's mm-hmm. definitely, you know, he definitely lives on the other side of, of life from me. In other words, he's, he's experienced different things in life than I'd ever have and likely ever will. But like, he's, a, he's also a gentleman. Like he actually helped my mom with her groceries recently. And um, so imagine like imagine a movement that's, that's peopled by folks who understand these realities about the complexity of, of who we are and our stories and our, and our personalities. I keep hearing in my head, Adrian Marie Brown talking about fractals, right? You're, if we could, you know, experience the kind of intimacy and connection and community that you're trying to build scaled up, like if, but, but if we can't do it at the small, we can't do it at the big. So what does it mean for us to take even the, the smaller, more intimate parts of our lives seriously enough so that when mm. it's time for us to show up in a big way, it's rooted in something and not that's something that's so just manufactured. Good. That's so good. That is so good. Yeah. So what do we need to do differently? We need to connect to our neighbors. We need to connect. I mean, I'm like, really? Like, you know what? We need to learn the stories of our neighbors. If we made that our goal for the first six months of 2022, what difference do you think that would make? Imagine the collective story of any Mm. particular part of a city that could be unearthed by Mm -hmm. people getting to know, to know one another's stories. I mean, I'm I'm in the middle of your book and I'm reading about what it meant for people to come up in Elmwood Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's a story. And, and but but there are thousands of stories mm-hmm. in that one space. And some mm-hmm. of them align to the longer arc of what it meant for that community to come into being. And some of them are like, you know, connected to unique lines of experiences that are different than other people in the same space. But mm-hmm. discovering like, what's the road that brought us? How did we all end up on this block together? Mm. How, how did that happen and what's common in that and what's different in that? And what do we want for our block? Yes. What do That's we right. dream of for yes. our block? I want yes. to get to that conversation. Yes. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road podcast. So, Michael Ray, when you look at 2022, what is the most difficult challenge that you believe we face? Well, we've kind of been uh, chewing on that a little bit already. I do Hmm. think that there is a sense of despair, you know, and it's it's certainly been, you know, shaped by the reality of the pandemic. You know, the pandemic has made it very hard for us to even do what we just talked about in a way that seems, you know, natural and meaningful and embodied. It's true. How do you build relationship with people when they can't understand what you're saying for your mask? How do you Mm. relationship with people because you're afraid to talk to them because they're not wearing a mask? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do you feel like you're just tired of being in this same house and ordering the same DoorDash food or cooking the same, (laughs) cooking the same, the same homemade meal? There are so many ways in which the pandemic has really cause a great amount of existential strife and, and stress in our lives. And then we look 
If we can and consume the news all the time, then we know that every day that those who are charged with the responsibility for leading this country are still playing political games, um, mm. are still holding out on helping us change the material conditions of people in our communities. It seems hopeless. And so I, I feel like I feel like 2022, the most difficult challenge is about us uh, maintaining a deep sense of hope and faith that it is possible not only for us to overcome this pandemic and figure out how to live with the reality of the coronavirus, but also that we can still invest in one another. We can still invest in families and communities. We can still invest in institutions that will sustain us over time. I, mm. I, I do feel like there's a crisis of, of faith that we're facing coming into this new year and this new election cycle because the, the forces that would keep us isolated and would break us up seem to be relentless. It does. I think you're exactly right. The, the faith itself, it's funny because faith is really, faith is kind of the substance of hope, I think. Faith, mm. hope, hope feels almost elusive. You, can, you can't really touch it, but faith yes. feels like it's like hope on crack. <laughs> right. Yes. I don't know if that's a good way to put it, but no, I think I think that is. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh yes, yes. You know, our executive director Alvin Aaron, he's like, I don't even preach about hope anymore. He's like, I am emphasizing faith. Yeah. Um, you know that the most important thing that we can invest in in this moment is faith, and I and I do think that anybody can embrace a notion of faith because faith really is what sustains us over time. Is that it is that something inside. Uh, so strong. Even when we feel like we can't hope, it's, it's faith that allows us to still stand in a space and see through a moment. So the greatest challenge that we're facing in 2022 is a, is a crisis of faith itself. I think you're right. And I, I think that's it's, it's as true in terms of our capacity to hold on to faith, to, to maintain faith, as well as the reality of the breakdown of our faith traditions, like it just, especially within Christianity and especially yeah. the evangelical church and all, just so many people are so disillusioned because we've seen the failure, like the absolute moral and ethical failure of, of our faith stream yeah. or, or the faith stream that, that our heritage hails from that has rooted a lot of people. So and that's not only the white evangelical church. That's also within um, much of the black church, especially that part that embraced the prosperity gospel, you know, which in large part or, you know, people were more likely than to support Trump if they were also prosperity gospel folks. So there's just a way that there's just deep disillusionment right now. So well, what do been, we need? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've been in love with the trappings of faith. Mm. Um, we've been in love with the tradition. You know, I've been in love with the tradition. I'm, I'm proud of the Black church tradition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? We've been in love with the tradition. We've been in love with the, with the things that we can hold on and see to. Like churches are making decisions about their buildings and they're realizing how much value they've placed in a building, yeah. you know, over and against, you know, the movement that their faith informs. And so mm -hmm. we are raising critical questions and important questions about the ways in which our traditions have participated in, in, in our oppression and the ways in which our traditions and some of these practices are lacking and no longer serve, serve any, any meaningful purpose in our lives. And people are stepping, you know, mm. people are, mm -hmm. people are still trying to find faith. Mm, They're realizing actual faith, 
actual faith. And this is happening for people, not only people who are stepping away from congregations and faith communities, but people who are in those faith communities as well mm-hmm. are as- also asking those questions. I mean, I'm one of those people. I'm asking, mm-hmm. like, what does it mean mm-hmm. for me to go deeper in my faith and not allow the trappings of faith to um, to trick me, to make me believe that this that this is what it's about? No, it's, it's much deeper than this. Before there was a visible church, when we were just in the clearing, in the hush harbors, Hello. we were trying to survive that church. How do we get that church? You know, it's funny because I think that one of the, the things that has helped me in that struggle has been to reconnect or actually connect in some ways for the first time with brown Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes. With physically brown, politically yes. black Jesus. I love when you preach about brown Jesus. Mm. Yeah. You know, physically brown, politically black, right? So the homeboy was definitely brown. He was definitely, you know, really, I mean, the Hebrew people before they mixed in with Europe could blend in with Egyptians and mm-hmm. and uh, not be recognized. We know that from Moses' story. We know that the place they ran to for cover, Jesus and Mary and Joseph ran to for cover to blend in was Africa, mm-hmm. um, was Egypt. And that, again, was before Egypt actually had had. Um, done any of its mixing with Europe. So, or most of its mixing. So these people were dark and they were African. And, and that matters in the context of a white supremacist colonizing Rome, right? So that's why I, why I emphasize that. But I think that that for me has been literally the thing that has restored my desire and, and my belief that this thing, uh, my faith, that my faith in Jesus is actually worth it, that it actually does have the power to change the world, that it's actually relevant right now. Well, it's because Jesus himself was struggling in similar ways that we are struggling right now. And so, you know, what can I learn from Brown Jesus? What can I learn from Brown Mary? I mean, I, I wonder, but I also know that that's not the case for everybody. Not everybody is going to, is, is, is actually looking toward even the Christian story. So that question of faith, when you go outside of one tradition, I mean, where, how, cause you, you guys are an interfaith or multi-faith network. Yes. How are you seeing this work its way out in the multi-faith sphere? Well, it just meant that we've, especially in an organization that was founded by a Christian and from for many, many years was mostly organizing Christian communities hmm. and still in this moment, just by the, just by the metrics alone, you hmm. know, is a majority uh, Christian, um, you know, majority Christian organization. Yeah. Uh, we've had, we've had to wrestle with the reality of the Christian tradition and its participation institutionally. I see. In oppression. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just about how are we understanding the power of Christian supremacy in our history and understanding the power of Christian privilege in mm-hmm. our intimate communities of organizing mm-hmm. the ways in which, you know, meetings and practices are kind of assume a Christian orientation and having to, you know, recognize that we have to hold space a little bit differently and create um, a more of a true welcome table mm, in mm. those spaces, mm-hmm. but also recognize the way in which, you know, we, we who are part of Christian traditions are part of a, a part of an institutional history uh, that has a lot to account for. 
And so how are we in this moment, you know, working out our soul salvation? How are we in this moment trying to redeem what it means to be to be Christian in relationship with our Sikh or Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or Unitarian or indigenous or humanist sibling in this work? How are, how are we holding uh, our faith in such a way that it can be inclusive of so many other spiritual traditions as, as well, but still allow us to show up authentically as who we are, whatever hmm. that is, right? How do I authentically show up as a Christian in this space and in a way that is not abusive to people yeah. who don't identify as Christian? Oh, that's good. And I just want to say that that's, that is also, that's part of what it means to enter into a deep groundedness in your own soul force or in, in connection to your faith. When we talk about being faith rooted, it's not the watering down of our faith traditions in order to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Yeah. On the contrary, what I've found, I mean, really in actual practice is that the real power enters the room when each of us goes deep and draws from the power of our actual faith tradition. So I can draw from the power of my Christian tradition, just as my Buddhist sister draws from the power of her Buddhist tradition and so on and so forth. And then we, we actually come into the room with real power. So I, I'm really feeling this. I mean, I feel yes. like basically what you just said or what we've said over the last you know, bit is that the work of 2022 is for us to dig deeper. It is for us so to draw deeper. from and connect. Draw from that well, yes. Yeah, yes. connect deeper. Connect, and to do that, to do that in an unapologetic way, but in a way that is welcoming to all. Yes, that's right. That's and deep. frankly, that looks like Jesus. Mm. Right? Like, how I think, so? How so? That's good. I think there are ways in which we think that creating these kinds of spaces where we can hold this kind of religious and spiritual diversity means that we have to somehow be less Christian. Hmm. But actually, our capacity to do that makes us even more Christian, looks even more like Jesus. Like Jesus. Yes. So you have children, right? I have one son. Yes. Oh, you have a yes. son. How old is your son? Do you mind me asking? Well, my little boy is no longer a little boy. He's 24 years old. 24. Oh my 24. gosh. Yes. He's like a full grown adult. He is out <laughs> there and he's a beautiful young man. He's out there in the world um, oh. doing his thing, discovering the next, the, the next step in his journey. I'm, I'm super proud, super proud of him. Yeah. He finished college a couple of years ago oh um, in 2019. So before the pandemic started, he came home for hmm. a bit with, you know, plans to try to find some work uh, on his way to graduate school. The pandemic, uh -huh. kinda, you know, threw a wrench in oh. those plans, but he has managed to find his footing in the midst of all that. And he's working in, he's working in his field and learning a lot of things that he wants to learn on his way to graduate school. And, oh my uh, gosh. Oh, super, super proud of him. That is, you should be proud. That is yeah. really awesome. And so he's 24 years old. You don't even look, I'm serious, Michael, right? You don't look old enough to have a 24 year old. Can I just say, <laughs> you really don't brother. You really don't. Oh, bless you. Black bless don't you, crack. That's okay. what I'm saying, people. Right. Black don't crack. <laughs> you got to reach, reach deep into that well. <laughs> you got to reach deep. It's the soul force. If anybody wants to know what our secret is, it's the soul force. And so I want to, I want to know one, actually two things. I want to know, was there a song that you sang over him when he was little? Oh, my 
man, I sang so many songs over him <laughs> um, and so many prayers. I used to rub his back at night and offer a, a blessing, you know, the, the blessing we often offer at the end of service, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord may um, his face shine upon you and be gracious and lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That would rub his back. And so now whenever I actually give that benediction, he's, he said, you can still feel my hand on his back, you my know, God. making circles on his back, blessing him. I sang a lot in my house. I still sing a lot in my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a song by Billy and Sarah Gaines called Breathe On Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a song that, I, I mean, I oversing it. Like, you know, people mm-hmm. in the faith and passion world, they're like, don't ask Michael Ray to pray because he just sing Breathe On Us. But it is the song because it it's a song about what we've been talking about, what it means when everything seems despairing and it's not clear where we're going to find our hope. What does it mean for us to call upon the Spirit to breathe new life into us? And what does it mean to understand that that Spirit has been breathing life into generations and generations and generations of people over time in that same ancient breath, the same ancient breath that sustained our foreparents. That's the breath that I want, God, uh, for you to breathe into me in this moment. And mm. that's what I pray for my son and for all the folks in my son's generation who are facing, you know, the darkness of this, of this moment. The yes. only way that we're going to be able to face the darkness of this moment is to wrestle with the question our sister Valerie, you know, raised about yeah. whether or not this is the darkness of the tomb or the womb. And I want, I want my son to, to understand the parts of this darkness that are about things that are dying, but also the parts of this darkness that are about things that are being reborn. Yes. Um, and that he can call on the spirit, call on the spirit, uh, call on the womb of God uh, to breathe to breathe on us and give Mm. us new life. Can you sing that for us? Can you sing us out? Sure. Mm. See that candle a burning day Patience that has now worn a thing Revive your people once again. Lord, bring us new life. We're your children growing cold. Fearful hearts that once were bold. So as you've done in times of old, Lord, bring us new life and breathe on us, breathe on us, Holy Spirit, we Invite, breathe on us, breathe on us, Lord, bring us new 
new life. Bring us new life. Amen. Usher. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again next month. Until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road.